0: Support for today's episode of Query comes from Backblaze, which offers unlimited cloud backup on Macs and PCs for just five dollars a month. You can access all your data anywhere on the web or on the go via your phone. Make sure you visit backblaze.com/query so they know where you came from and continue to support this show. You can receive a fully featured 15-day trial at Backblaze. That's b-a-c-k-b-l-a-z-e.com/query. Go there, mess around with it Hey, Quiros. This week's guest is the amazing Jacqueline Woodson. She's a writer. I really like her stuff. She's got new books out right now, but um, I really recommend reading her. And also, hey, friends, Cami Esposito, this guy, I'm going to be in London. On September 13th as part of the London Podcast Festival. That's not yet sold out, but all my other shows in London are. So if you want to come see me in London September 13th, please come. Also, I'll be in Chicago, Ann Arbor, Louisville, Kentucky, Bloomington, Cleveland, Ohio, Pittsburgh, New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Boston, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, D.C., Denver, and um, some other shows that are yet to be announced this fall. You can go to CameronEsposito.com. Slash tour to get tickets to all of those shows. Please enjoy this conversation. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. Well, uh, first of all, that w- we are, we are working with the full support of technology. I am <laughs> in Chicago. You are remotely oh. in, uh, upstate New York, and we uh-huh. are still making this work. Because that, because, hey, as queer people, we've got technology now, so we can connect with each other.
1: Yes. (laughs) Feels so
0: good. Um, On this show, I I have people introduce themselves, so would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Hey, my name is Jacqueline Woodson, and most of the time I live in Brooklyn, New York, but today I am in Brewster.
0: Hmm. And uh, Jacqueline, what do you uh, do with your time? I know what you do with your time.
1: Okay. So the thing I do with most of my time is write. I love writing. I've loved writing since I was about seven years old. I love telling stories. I love making up stories. Um, And I love um, creating worlds. So yeah, writing is the thing I do. When I'm not writing, I'm hanging with my family, um, with my partner, Juliet, who's an amazing physician, and um, our children, Toshi, who's 16, so of course she's not here, and our son, Jackson Leroy, who's 10. And a whole village of other people that are helping us move through this <laughs> world and raise our children
0: man that sounds that sounds nice
1: yeah, it's a good thing
0: <laughs> sounds like sounds like you got some stuff together i I was so happy to um well, I've read a bunch of your stuff um, I read uh, another Brooklyn recently on a yeah. flight. Um, a lot of your books are. Um, like appropriate for younger readers but then also I think really like interesting for me I mean as a 36 year old person I was reading like I think Another Brooklyn is like what is that is like like a middle grade or like a what what age is that like reader?
1: (laughs) Another Brooklyn is my first adult novel in 20 years so my that's
0: well, then I am
1: that straight up terribly
0: up. ashamed. I thought I was just like, wow, yeah. I can really connect with the youth. I was really proud of myself for, like, staying, like, <laughs> hip. Um, that's a beautiful book. I also uh, read Harbor Me and um, mm-hmm. The Day You Begin, which is your which are your two new books that are coming out yeah. um, on the twenty eighth. Yeah, Harbor
1: Me is oh, so great.
0: Um, yeah, Harbor Me is amazing. Um, and Thank I also you. have been reading – I mean, like, I'm, like, fully steeped in your – <laughs> in your like catalog right now, I'm I'm also my laptop is stacked on top of uh, "If You Come Softly" and also "Brown uh-huh. Girl Dreaming," and uh-huh. um, well, I guess I want to start by saying that your style is really unusual. I think <laughs> what um, I'm sure you can speak to this yeah. more than I can because I'm just like a idiot stand-up comic, but it's almost like you're doing um, poetry as prose in a lot of the stuff that you write. Um, it's yeah
1: yeah it's um it's interesting because I definitely have a deep respect for both for I love poetry. I read a lot of poetry um, and I have to hear everything I write. So so I read it out loud. And I think that makes a difference in how it looks on the page and how it sounds when you're reading it. But yeah, so so like with another Brooklyn, it's a it's a novel. Um, that's also nonfiction because all the stuff you read about Bushwick is actually true. Uh, and on top of that is the layer of poetry and that comes into play with the way the book is broken up, with the way I play with white space, with the way I play with language and so on. So yeah, I have a deep respect for, uh, all literary forms.
0: Wait, I want to, I want to revisit what you just said. You hear everything you write. So it like Mm -hmm. pops into your brain as, um... Like you're listening to an audiobook of your of your own stuff? Um, or like, what is it like? No, 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 no. What's I, that feeling I, like?
1: I, I, you know, I, I feel like my books are definitely character driven. Um, but the way the characters speak is very clear to me. So mm. I write it down, but then I read it out loud. And it has to sound a certain way. So a lot of my editing goes to making it sound a certain way.
0: How did you learn how to do that. Do you know where that comes from in your life?
1: Uh, I think it comes from just having, just loving language and having a deep respect for story and, and people. I mean, you know, the books are people driven, even though the people are people I've made up, but um, just really listening a lot to language and the way people speak and what they say and how they say it and thinking about that a lot and thinking about the limiting of that, in t- between um, the real world and the world of fiction, so I want the books to sound true, even though they're fiction, and I want the people to feel real, even though they don't really exist. So it's it's having a deep respect for the form and also for people, and and in my case, young people, because um because so many of my books, as you said, are targeted to them.
0: Did did your family um you have like a really talkative family growing up? What kind of, what kind of like dinner table conversation?
1: <laughs> oh man, no, not so much. Um, they, you know, I, well, when you read Brown Girl Dreaming, you'll see I grew up Jehovah's Witness. And I, I have
0: read, I have, I've only started it, but um, oh, okay. yes. Yeah.
1: So I grew up Jehovah's Witness and Muslim. And um, so the two, so the both are very text driven religions um, and require a lot of Textual commentary, but not necessarily sitting around the table emoting about feelings and and um, stuff like that. But but there was a lot of story, I think, in my family when I was much younger. You know, I come from the South, and and the Southern storytelling is just what it is. And um, and I think that with my friends and, and and growing up in a in a Black and Latino community, there was also that that element of um storytelling through music and and through um friendships and the kind of way we moved around each other had a lot of um language to it
0: I can relate to that I mean I I grew up in a really Italian family so like um Mm -hmm. my dinner table conversation might have been a little different than yours like it was uh, very loud all the time uh and then I was like the middle kid um Mm -hmm. not as loud uh So Uh then, like, that's the one that becomes a stand-up comic because it's like, you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm Uh (laughs) saying? It's like everyone else got their space, and I'm like, I'm saving it for uh, (laughs) what will probably eventually become a a hopefully long career. (laughs) Uh, I'll catch up. But um, I I do love the way that your characters talk and also that, well, um, the visual aspect, the way that you're, Mm -hmm. like, there's not necessarily quotes. There's not, like, quotes. Mm -hmm. It's not, like they said, you know, or whatever it's, yeah. um, you're <laughs> expecting, I think, of uh, um, uh, for your reader to like get into a style that I think is also a little challenging, especially for some mm. readers that would be younger, that would be reading some of this stuff, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that actually kind of, um, mm-hmm. speaks to the respect that you're talking about for your audience that you yeah. would imagine that like a younger person will be able to, like, understand that this is speech, even if there aren't, like, quotation marks and the they said yeah. after it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, for instance, in Harbor Me, that's, you know, that's, like, one of the things I noticed immediately, was just that mm-hmm. um, you were expecting a lot of your reader.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, I think that's a great thing about young people, is they deliver, right? right? I think, <laughs> yeah, so I, I think you can give them something seriously deep, and and they'll return it to you even deeper. So, so and the thing about the taglines that he said, she said stuff, I think, um, and good narratives, it's not really necessary because you do know who's speaking if you're following the conversation.
0: Mm-hmm, right. I mean, yeah, and I own. I also wonder if that isn't, I mean, I'm not sure that you're doing this on purpose, but also, like, a young person growing up today is doing more, um, maybe more reading in different places than like I would have grown up yeah. with. Like you're not necessarily just reading in books. Like even yeah. something like so- social media, you can like that can yeah. be a way that you're reading. I'm imagining a person growing up with Twitter would have like a totally mm-hmm. different way of understanding how we communicate with each other as people than yeah. like I would have, or or you would have. Um,
1: are much more minimalist because you yeah, exactly. Pure characters, yeah,
0: yeah. And y- this book Harbor Me, which also deals with like a ton of contemporary issues. There's like, I mean, like everything in here. There's <laughs> there's everything in here. Uh, you know,
1: it's interesting, right? Because the what Harbor Me is dealing with is contemporary and not right. Because mm-hmm. um, when you look at um, when you look at the issue of deportation that's been going on forever when you look at the issue of police brutality in the communities of people of color that's been forever when you look at the history of mass incarceration i mean are the you know the school to prison pipeline these are all things that we are talking about now i mean especially um communities that are not the communities that are impacted by it in the same way but It's stuff that's been going on for a long time, sadly. I'm
0: so glad to hear that correction because you're totally right. And I think, well, I guess I just look back at like my schooling. I mean, um, I know you can't see me. You can only hear my voice, but I will tell you I am a white person. And um, Mm -hmm. my schooling, like maybe I would have read about a character dealing with like one issue. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. maybe I would have read a book where there was like a young black woman who was, like, the first person to integrate a school or whatever. You know, like, I would have read, like, that book. But she Uh would have existed sort of, like, um, outside the framework of a system. It's just, like, one issue at a time sort of a thing as opposed to, like, what you're doing with this book is um, almost acting as if, like, a bunch of issues happen together and are all systemically (laughs) related. Like, wouldn't that be wild if that was true? (laughs) If they, like, yeah. interacted with each other, the yes. people affected by them, and also if the the um, issues interacted with each other directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that feels, like, different about this book. But you're right. It's not, like, of course, that's how it's been the whole time.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that that
0: just wasn't my experience as a reader.
1: Uh-huh, yeah. Going through it's, school. Because I remember, um, you know, If You Come Softly is a book I wrote 20 years ago. And it's about a kid who gets killed in a case it's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet but 20 years ago I asked myself well what would the thing be now in the 1990s and that would kill a young black boy and that was the thing right that that was the devil we knew um and and when you open that book today it looks like a headline chaser but it was written 20 years ago and right. like no, this was here. When you look at Amadou Diallo, when you look at Edmund Perry, and the history of um, people of color who were killed by cops back in the day, it's just a long line of the same crap.
0: I mean, i I think it's it's wild to um, I don't know if you when, if you when you wrote that in the '90s, um, was there a response that people like <laughs> believed that that was a thing that happened? Like I'm just curious about like a general like literary world response.
1: Well, black communities were like, yep. And yes, black that, communities yes, of course. were like, like communities like this would never happen. And you know, I got that feedback a couple of times and I was like, wait, what? Like mm-hmm. you know, because we didn't have social media, we didn't have um the same everyday pipelines that was showing the world the what was happening in communities. Um and so so now we do have that and um it and it's different um but yeah back then it, it got a an interesting response and in that some people were like it, it could never happen like why is she writing this book this way basically
0: i mean i i completely believe that because yeah. i am a white person who was alive in the 90s and i can imagine that if i encountered that book um I mean, I would have been like a kid, so I don't know that I would have been able to to speak on it, but I think even my teacher, like, I just think it it would have mm -hmm. been like a what if this happened sort of a thing, as opposed Mm -hmm. to like, oh, this is a thing that happens, and Uh here's a way that you could care about it by, like, being introduced to these characters kind of a thing, even if it's outside of your community.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how we come to our empathy, right? Um, And I think so much of It comes to us through um, being exposed to who and what we don't know. And for so many young people, that's through literature. So um, for me, it was a, a, the question I was asking was, how do we get people to think about other people? And the answer is they need to feel something for them first. And in the case of Jeremiah, and, and if you come softly, you fall in love with this kid and you, want nothing bad to happen to him and then when something does you get angry right and you're like okay how am I gonna walk out into the world and change it
0: yeah you and I have that in common in terms of um an artistic goal I I definitely Mm -hmm. I didn't know it when I started doing stand-up um it's Mm -hmm. been in like reflection that I have realized Mm -hmm. that I think I started doing stand-up so that people could well number one to make myself safer because it was like I would come out to the whole Mm -hmm. room and then it's like well there's other witnesses so like you can't Beat the shit out of me because, like, these people Uh, saw too, you know. Um, And mm -hmm. then also just to kind of, like, you know, really literally to create safety because I wanted people to meet me. I'm, like, kind of smiley and um, (laughs) friendly. And I I was literally, like, if you just meet me, um, and, again, it's not really me. It's, like, the character that I'm playing on stage. If you just meet me, then, like, maybe you will want to give people like me a fair shot or some rights Mm -hmm. or, like, Mm -hmm. some room to exist. Does that feel Mm -hmm. true to what you were doing as a writer? Yeah,
1: definitely. I think um, people, yeah, yeah, I I would definitely say that. I would say that I think, you know, people don't know what they don't know, and they're very scared of what they don't know, or what they think they don't know, um, or what they think they don't want to know. (laughs) So I, I think for me, it's creating these worlds and putting these people into those worlds, and and giving those people voice. And then um, giving, you know, there's this um, person, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who is uh, uh, an academic, a historian. uh, 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 She's done a lot of work around, quote unquote, multicultural literature, which is what it was called in the 70s, I mean, in the 90s. And then um, really bringing to, Um, light, the importance of people reading across lines of race and class, uh, economic class, across lines of gender and sexuality, all these ways in which people kind of bubble themselves and only read one kind of thing. So they don't, they never meet queer people, they never meet people of color, or they never meet white people, they never meet um, deaf people, whatever the quote unquote other is. And I think that for me, the literature was about, yeah, introducing readers to the people that they think they don't know and showing the ways in which there is some way intersectionality in all of us as human beings. And um, yeah, so, so it is part of that bigger narrative that we're trying to create with our work. Um, And then the part of me is like, after, you know, writing 30 something books and still having people be jerks about some stuff. I'm just like, you know what? I'm done.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yes. Yes. This is me clapping. You don't have to do all the work. You don't have to. I'm, I'm, I'm affirming that.
1: Yeah. What is that
0: feeling? Tell me more about that.
1: It's it's time for the allies to step up, right? Like it's, it's for us to stop having to explain and, and for other people to come and bear witness and speak up and, and, um, And do some of the work. Uh, I feel like a lot of us have been doing a lot of the work for a very long time. And um, at what point are other people going to do it? So I don't know.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm sure that that is a feeling. Like you know, you said writing thirty books, and then like, and then your books can still point to the same conclusions. You know, like that. That's it's Mm -hmm. rad to have like a thesis statement that you know, pushes you through the world, but then also frustrating when that thesis Mm -hmm. statement can stay the same as you've Mm -hmm. created so much art and as the art has been successful. And you're like, Mm -hmm. I almost wish, I mean, I'm just, I'm I'm imagining, I'm empathizing that that it might be a relief to have that thesis statement be able to change for there to be like an -hmm. adjustment or an updating, like, oh, well, since we've gotten this far, now we can (laughs) work on this thing.
1: Yeah, or even, right, even having a work, get dated right mm. <laughs> like, that's the thing it's like sure. how come this shit is not dated yet like how come someone can't look at if you come softly and say oh that happened a long time ago it would never happen now they can't because it's still happening so so that that's kind of interesting the way we just keep having to do the work
0: what you do know? you do with that feeling that frustration um just as you know, a person
1: um i talk about it a lot i i, I talk to the village about it i i talk to um, you know um, my kids about it. I, I I think all of I think it's some way that all of us feel at some point in time I think I'm extremely grateful to have people in my life who who listen and and who hear it and who can say yeah, I got you you know take a break let's go um, <laughs> let's go grab a glass of wine or let's go you know take a walk around the block or you know. so so I, and I and I think for me, it brings kind of a sadness in that not everyone has that, right? Not everyone has that moment where they can go to their friends and say, you know what? I'm tired as fuck right now. So, um, so let's do something different. Like one of my best friends, Toshi, who our daughter's named for is, um, you know, someone who I can text a call in a minute and say, come get me. I am so done with people right now. And, and she shows up and we go off and we have a good meal and we have some drinks and, you know, and we just talk, and I think that that that's kind of my salvation. I also sew um and sewing helps me kind of separate from the world in a way. Um, and you know, and I have a really good partner i um who who is um very thoughtful about the world in a way that you know, eighteen years in, I'm still like, wow, thank you so <laughs> <Okay. laughs> very, very lucky. So
0: yeah, well, I also. I mean, I guess I would imagine, and again, this is kind of coming from my perspective and my mm-hmm. experience, so I wonder if it's the same, and I'm mean, going to bet it is, um, when you are living the experience that you're also trying to change. that's a, mm-hmm. That's also exhausting. And also, I'm in a position of great privilege because, like, I get to, like, run around and make art about this experience that's painful, mm-hmm. where, like, uh-huh. other people have to just, like, um, you know, have whatever job they have where they can't be out or like where their haircut is like too extreme for what's going on around them or, you know, whatever like levels mm-hmm. of pain I'm not experiencing because, because I'm like, point. because I've gotten to choose uh, mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. most people never get to choose, which is what I want to do professionally with my life. Like, the uh-huh. percentage of people that get to choose that, it's like... What is it? Zero in the arc of human history? (laughs) Negative amounts of people. Um, but I still think that when the thing that you're working to change is also an identity that you fall within. Like you're like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to make I'm trying to um make it safer for queer folks or like make it safer for survivors of sexual assault. But then like that's Mm -hmm. still my damage is on that Mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. So like at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, sometimes I sometimes I get like a little bit sad almost that like, this is gonna sound so arrogant, but please like sometimes I get a little bit sad that I can't like be in the audience at my show not because I like want to watch myself but just because it would be nice to have that moment of community um and uh you know so like yeah I feel harmed I feel harmed um and I and I don't know what to do with that like I don't know what to do with the fact that it's like I still am scared sometimes walking down the street
1: so what do you do with so how how, how do you do self-care
0: um, that's just, I mean therapy. I also like mm-hmm. I like to walk. I'm re, I'm like a big walker. I like to put on mm-hmm. headphones and like um travel and uh mm-hmm. like acquire distance under my feet. It makes me feel very calm. I'm like a dog sort of. <laughs> I need to be walked. Um, and it makes me feel also like I have um a lot of things that are open to me because it's you know there's no barrier to entry for me. I'm able bodied. I can mm-hmm. just like kind of mm-hmm. walk for as long as I can and um. Mm-hmm that makes me feel really free. And it makes me feel like I'm not, I don't have a responsibility to anybody in that moment, mm-hmm. just myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like, I listen to music. Well, I'll put on yeah. one song on repeat. It's like a different song <laughs> yeah. every day. Yeah. And I will just yeah. walk it out. I just yeah. head up in one direction and I, yeah, yeah, do some sort of loop, walk all the cities I travel to. Wow, I don't know.
1: That's great. That, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I do the song on repeat too
0: much too. <laughs> yeah, right. Dismay what was that last thing
1: As I said much to people's dismay yeah, so.
0: I, know. I know I'm always like do not follow me on Spotify it will be yeah, shameful yeah. I, you, will be ashamed, you will be ashamed of me it's just yeah. one Celine Dion song for three days <laughs> <laughs> or like my whatever own. the mood is
1: it's so true my playlist when young people ask like, what kind of music I listen to I'm like not even look at my playlist you'll think I'm insane <laughs>
0: so, so you, you've you got like two new books coming out are you writing right now you writing something i
1: am i am i'm working on another adult book that i'm on deadline for dang yeah wait how
0: how like how many books are how many books do you write a year your numbers are (laughs) it doesn't make any sense to me i'm trying to understand your productivity
1: it used to be i call it bc before children it was two to three books a year and then um once i started having kids it, it it Slow down a little bit. This year um, was a more productive year. I think also, well, you know this, I feel like I can get more done on the road because I'm so isolated in a way. Um, and I was on the road a lot after the National Book Award, and, and so I was writing a lot. And this book that I'm working on now, um, this adult book is raggedy and all over the place, and ah, ah but one day <laughs> it'll be done.
0: Yeah. So. Oh, is, that a, is that a fun feeling? When it's like raggedy and all over the place. I actually kinda like that in standup. Like if I'm if I'm working on something new and it doesn't work yet, um, (laughs) for me that's actually kind of a fun time in the process.
1: I like looking back on it. All right. (laughs) I hear that. In the moment it's it's uh, it's, I'm hard to live with. So Oh my god, me Um, too.
0: Who isn't hard to live with? Oh, (laughs) normal people? Okay, fine. Well look, we're artists. We get to do whatever we want that's so true um you brown girl dreaming 2014 is that that's the year that that Mm -hmm. came out and then that Mm -hmm. that won a ton of awards Mm -hmm. and um like maybe put you in a different category of exposure is that true
1: you know it did it was it was an interesting year. I don't know if you know the whole backstory behind that year with the National Book Award. And you should tell
0: year. you should tell me the backstory because and, I feel yeah. like our listeners like this is all very interesting stuff.
1: Well, the year that I won, it um, it won for young people's literature. It was uh, It's a memoir, um, and it's a story of growing up in between the north and the south, and um, between a. You know, a family that was wealthy, and one uh, well off, and one that was not so well off. Um, but when it won, the person who was in announced to the world that I was allergic to watermelon, which is true, and uh, as a joke. Uh, and then it became this whole thing because you know it was a very racist comment to make, and um, and it just kind of had this whole. Um, reverberation uh, around the country, especially with people of color, and that, and especially in that particular time, that um, the National Book Award would be reduced to this joke, this racist joke, um, and and so people had a lot of feelings about it. And I ended up writing a piece for the New York Times called "The Pain of the Watermelon Joke." But I think that I think um, I don't know if. The, it would have been quieter. Like if the award would have been quieter. I had been a National <laughs> Book Award finalist many times before that. I had won, you know, I've won lots and lots of awards. So, so it's interesting, but it definitely um, put me on the radar. And I think also because I was writing so much. You know, I was writing for the. I hadn't written that much for the Times before. I was writing for the, all these other venues, and and it was kind of this turning in my writing career. Um, but Brown Girl Dreaming had already won. The, I think it had gotten the Mariana by then. It had gotten. It had gotten a bunch of awards. Um, so I don't know. But but for I remember my friend Toshi Regan was sitting there and in the audience, and um, she was like, "He's fucking up. He's fucking up. He's fucking up." Like you know, as, as the person was saying it. But but it was interesting because um, I don't know if it was because Brown Girl Dreaming was also like my twenty-something book, and people had were finally like, wow, this person's here to stay a minute. Or if it was all of the stuff around that, and then people or if, or if it was that, you know, on um, Business Saturday, Obama was photographed buying two copies of the book. Like there was all of this energy around that book um, that sent me to another level. And then that same year, or I, I you know, it was featured in the Times with President Carter, with Carter, who had been president. Um, I, I don't want to say President Carter and not say President Obama. That just feels whack to me. Um, but so so, so there was a lot of energy around me. And I don't know, you know, stepping back from it is like, well, what's what? How, what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know? Um, but it was an interesting time. It was a really interesting time.
0: Wow. I want to ask you so many follow-ups. Um, uh-huh. was that your first memoir? I just don't know that. I've like looked at, yes. you know, but I think yes. it was, right? Yes. So that's My also, only memoir. Yeah. And it's, and it's also like, again, it's kind of written in, I mean, it's what, those are poems, in, yeah? It's
1: written, yeah. Which is memory, right? Because that's how memory comes to us in these small moments with all of this white space around it. So- yeah. Oh
0: my God. I mean, I guess that is if you're like, uh, if you're. I mean, again, if you're just going to speak to me in poetry, like, yeah, I guess that's what it is. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, it's it's a really beautiful way to do a memoir. I haven't seen anything like that. Um, and it's been really nice to read it. Um, and I think you are you are right. That is how memory works. I don't. I certainly would never have said that or pitched a book that relied on that. Um, so good job. And that joke that you're talking about um, was that a person that you knew that made that joke? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, I don't so know it was what sh- makes it right? worse. You know what I mean? Like I don't know what's worse <laughs> if that's a stranger or somebody you know. I, I can't tell what's worse.
1: Yeah. No. No. I think I think the thing about it it was shtick, Right. It was we learned about inside outside voice very young and it was stick and it was shtick that did not work. Right. But. But the the problem with it is that people don't know that. The, the, so that's why I wrote the piece in the New York Times. It's like let me let me break down the history of the watermelon joke and why this is painful for people, you mm-hmm. know. And 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 just I just completely broke it down because I think it was uh, a learning moment for a lot of people because I think we forget history and I think this country is very happy to forget the history it wants to forget, and so. Um, saying, you know, making a joke about someone being a, allergic to watermelon and it just being a joke—it's like, why is that funny? Like, You know, I'm also allergic to avocado. Like, you know, but but what is it about that particular thing? Let let's examine this and let's um let's truly understand what we're saying. And as a mom, like this is something we're doing all the time with uh, young people, and so. So what I learned is, like, nah, I guess I got to do it with grownups, too, because people don't understand. And does that make someone a bad person or a good person? No, it makes them a person who does not understand, and now they understand, and hopefully this won't happen again for the next person. Yeah. So.
0: Well, and I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic that you don't have to uh, at all convince that, that, like, uh. that, like, jokes are not um, – silliness like i actually take Mm -hmm. my job really seriously so something that i reject is when other comics will be like ah it's just a joke i'm like well Mm -hmm. i mean is that the disrespect that you have for our art i can get real serious Mm -hmm. and real lesbian real quick um (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, but no like and i also think i mean this makes me think it is not this is not the same at all but it makes me think of like when um when call me by your name uh was Mm -hmm. actually no it was called no, call and I was gonna say it was also moonlight. I saw I saw both oh. times. I saw both mm-hmm. times when both of those um movies were nominated, or at least when they were part of like award season this year and award season the year prior. um, mm-hmm. the hosts would call out like those actors and and um like the hand job that's on the beach in moonlight, like that got played during the Oscars intro and stuff like that. and mm-hmm. um, and no other. Sex scenes that are in any other movie, like this is a f- this is a funny joke to you, like, huh? I wonder if you like backed up a little bit if you could figure out why this was so funny to you. <laughs> like, wonder mm-hmm. if it's because it's uh, like homophobia. Like, wow. I wonder if that's why you uh-huh. think this is so funny. Mm-hmm. But I saw it both years with both movies. um Wow. And you know the way that those actors were treated, and and mm-hmm. and it was very. And that's, you know, now when we like can mm-hmm. kind of give this lip service to just like, now nah, we're cool with it. Like these movies are hits. Mm-hmm. These movies are mm-hmm. winning Best Picture. And mm-hmm. you're like, mm-hmm. I would feel so much better if that movie won Best Picture without the joke about the uh-huh. hand job on the beach. Mm-hmm. Like that would make mm-hmm. me feel like you actually took mm-hmm. this movie seriously.
1: Yeah. Oh, without calling the wrong movie out. <laughs> that would also be nice.
0: <laughs> that would also be nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you. I like, oh, truly. Okay.
1: you know what? You know what? It's just another moment. Like, yeah, you know, this as a queer person, um, that daily microaggressions are just moments of growth for everyone. So, so I, I feel like it was a necessary moment in time for the country, for me, for me to remember why I'm doing the work I'm doing, for the country to understand the work ahead of us. So, so I do think,
0: it had to happen.
1: You know. That's how I look back at
0: it. Well, I think that's a very gracious take. <laughs> Slash maybe it also helps you continue to work. You know, you can't be like, no, literally fuck everything. <laughs> yeah, Because yeah, yeah, otherwise yeah, it'd be hard to get yeah. up in the morning. No, but and,
1: and it's also, you don't want to give anyone that kind of power, right? Or you let them take your power. So it's like, yeah. one thing I remember Toshi saying, it's like, why is it that every time I open up the screen to look, For your name on the national court I see this person's picture like we need to fix this (laughs) like yeah that that you know it it should let's get this energy back to where it should be and I thought that was interesting too
0: that is interesting um we're certainly in a moment right now where like that's I mean not that this is a new moment but that's a lesson that's important to continue to think about like as we're like in this moment of there's a lot of allyship going on right now that like Mm -hmm. i don't think i've seen as much in the Mm -hmm. past in like my adulthood this feels like the most that people are talking about Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. from an allied perspective but still it's kind of um you know again Mm -hmm. just like let's use queer movies for an example let's let's use those movies that um Call me by your name, I like loved I like loved that movie. And I also mm-hmm. would like love it if those were actually uh out queer actors. That would make me yeah. feel so good, you know. Yeah. If if we were so able to too. do that. You know, because those mm-hmm. those guys I think are so talented and I think they did great a great job. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um boy, wouldn't I love to yeah. see um two people uh-huh. together who like I know have to live this. That would make me feel that would make me feel so good. <laughs> Yeah, it is so, yeah. so true. Let's, let's definitely put the spotlight where it should be. This week's episode of Query is sponsored by Pact Apparel. Pact is an organic cotton clothing company, so many Cs, on a mission to make sure everyone is comfy in their own skin. Pact uses 100% organic cotton and partners with Fairtrade certified factories because they believe the comfort of people who make the clothes is just as important as the comfort of those who wear them. Despite being organic, Pact clothes are awesomely affordable. Tees are just 15 bucks, leggings are $30, and underwear for only 9 I shop at the men's section where I have a really awesome sweatshirt from there. It's super gray, it's super soft, you would like it. So head on over to w e a r p a c t dot com and enter the code query at checkout for twenty five percent off your first order wearpact slash query keep your comfort close and your true self closer. Do you hear this sound, Queeros? Well, that's the sound of me opening up my some bras from True Body. Yeah, trueandco.com is the bra. Oh, wow, this actually is really soft. But also, like, wow, it's kind of, wow, okay. Yeah, I'm going to put that on my body. Look, sometimes your job is really unusual, and you have to email the people that work at your podcast company what your bra size is. And sometimes they're just people that you have, like, a friendly relationship with, but, like, not, like, a best friendship with, but then you still have to email them your bra size. So um, I just want to thank TrueBody bra for allowing me to email all of the folks at Earwolf with my bra size. I want you to know, listeners, that I will gladly email my bra size to you. Hey, you won't believe how good the True Body bra looks when you put it on. Super soft fabric that smooths out in all the right places, It has no wires, so super comfy. Unlike other wire-free bras, the original True Body bra is made with proprietary fabric that still gives you the support you need. It took over six Years of collecting data from 7 million women, <laughs> so many women, to make this game-changing bra. Uh, so it's no surprise that TruCo has sold over half a million the original TruCo body bras. So if you're a person that wears a bra, however you identify, head on over to trueco.com, T-R-U-E, and C-O.com, trueandco.com, slash query, and enter the code query for 15% off. That's dot ocom slash query, and enter Code query for fifteen percent off. Wow, listen to those bras. Um, do you do you look back so does that does that color your experience of that book still? Like or or do you personally uh, when you passed it? Of Brown Girl Dreaming. Like is it is it uh, painful to think about that, or is it like a book that you oh. still think of as a huge success? it wasn't huge. Oh success. my
1: goodness, no, no! It's a you know, it's a gift to the ancestors. That book means everything to me. <laughs> nothing nothing change that. Like um, you know, it's, it's it's my family. So uh, <laughs> I love it. I, I think it's one of my favorites.
0: Based on how long uh, you have been writing and the changes that I know have happened for queer folks during those times. Like could you Mm -hmm. could you always be out and do your job? Um that's
1: a really good question. I I think I always have been out. Um and and maybe at points in my life it was quieter. Um but I don't think anyone didn't know. I you know, my publishers and always knew my girlfriends. Like I I never, when kids ask me, I remember, you know, early on kids would ask me if I was married and I'd say, why are you trying to get with me or something? But, and kind of side skirted and, and then I would say, you know, we're not allowed to get, my partner and I aren't allowed to get married. No, I just say, and now we can, are allowed to get married, but I have zero interest in getting married. But, uh, um, you know, I say, I have a girlfriend, I have a partner, she's an amazing physician, she's at Callan Lord, like, you know, um, but, and I've always written books with, queer characters from very early on um so so it wasn't like um i mean i feel like people have to be blind to, to not
0: know. well i mean sure but like that's also a whole other thing is people like not reading and you're like no no like straight up you can use the context clues like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you can put that it together weird. like it's it's fine i'm fine with you putting it to, i'm trying to give you the information <laughs> yeah. that you need <laughs> but yeah. I, I would just imagine um I mean, again, it's like this has changed. I wonder if people now even think about this, but like this has changed so much because I remember that very specific um, argument, like separating uh, queer adults or like even people in their like late teens from like kids, like how mm-hmm. how like important that divide was to some
1: well nonsensical it was, um, human beings. Well, I think the priest fixed that for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah
0: thanks <laughs> the catholicism that i grew up yeah, in <laughs> yeah
1: yeah no and i think um you know sadly i think that was more um I, I i never i never felt like people thought i was going to um be dangerous around young people for that reason i think it was more about um talking about it and people not having had conversations with their young people about queer issues and so the kids being like not um their their parents not being ready to expose their kids to quote-unquote homosexuality right but um but I think that that's really changed like kids are kids you know you my, my you know my son who's 10 and I know he's in a queer family but you know, he talks about people being gender non-binary. Like, you know, the the language of young people is so broad, and the spectrum is so broad. Like, their their freakiness is like, what do you mean? Um, someone has to be straight. Like, like to them, and and this is across the board of the young people I'm meeting these days. They're like, you know, how how never assume heterosexuality and um, never never assume gender. <laughs> like, and these these are straight. You know, these are kids who are coming from all kinds of families, having these very real conversations, and I think that's the work that queer people have done to to change the narrative. Um, so, so it's not it it's not. I felt like early on, one thing that I would have to choose is if I was walking into a school and it was a you know an all black underserved school, and um, you know, some kid was like. Are you married it was the kind of like are you a big old night like and it's like do i want them to focus on that or do i want them to focus on seeing here's a black woman who's coming from the same the same situation and and has made it as a writer and they can make it too and i didn't want that you know that that message to be erased with them kind of being like well she's a lesbian so she's so different from me that i can't even imagine doing what she does so so that, that those were the kind of choices I felt like I had to make early on and I think I don't anymore. Like I I feel like now I'm going into those rooms for the young queer kids in the room to so mm-hmm. need to see that mirror as well as everyone else just needs to see the other mirrors that I am. But, but in terms of my literature, I never had to make a choice. No one ever said, you can't put a queer person in this. And I have, you know, after Tupac and D. Foster, if you come softly, um, the dear one, like so many of my narratives have gay men or lesbians in them.
0: I think that that burden of just like, because um, there is like the dangerous thing. There was like the danger zone of like, <laughs> this is a dangerous adult. But then there's also the burden mm-hmm. of like, of that thing that I think you also talked about for a moment which is like no it's like a parents uh mm-hmm. um like privilege or like need to to mm-hmm. provide this information about what queer folks are and often also straight parents right like so it's a tr- straight mm-hmm. parents job to tell you what queerness is and then really separating yeah. out kids from like a queer adult who might be able to actually offer um mm-hmm. like a more mm-hmm. or honest or lived perspective you know like I know for me that would have been so helpful because it was just like I was just like staring into a void of like well I guess nothing is my future (laughs) (laughs) because I've never met anybody that was out to me and I know I have teachers if I look back you know that couldn't be honest about what was going on in their lives and that would have helped me so much Um, So so like you're I'm so glad that I mean, truly, like, thank you for being the person oh. that goes into these schools. That really means a lot to me as a oh, as a member of our queer family. That you get to be out there and and providing like some, just some, just some, you know, some context. Oh. You're like, look, you might get a pool like that. It's it could include a pool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna go videotape myself walking around the property for the next
0: school. <laughs> <No>. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right oh man that's, that's so good um I also want to ask another question about um sort of like your 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 history writing um was it always easy to um sell or contextualize for like the publishing industry um books with, people of color and then specifically black folks in mm-hmm. like leading or or main character roles was that something that was easy to do or did, was it a hard sell what was it like what does it continue to be like
1: I feel like it was um it, uh I think the hardest part for me was writing um and I came out I came into the world of publishing at a time where I feel like the bodega doors were open right um, we had had Mildred Taylor, Walter D. Myers, Virginia Hamilton. Excuse me, going back to James Baldwin, Audrey Lord, um, Nikki Giovanni. Like there had been this um, crew of writers from the '70s to '80s, and now it was time for a new Jack crew. And and then that was me I, for young adult writers: um, Rita Williams Garcia, Sandra Draper um walter be my kind of limb that, that but so, so there were a bunch of us that publishers were like and then there was dr rudin sims bishop talking about the importance of multicultural liter- literature people were talking about own voices who was going to write this and boom here i am Jacqueline woodson with these black characters so i'm like a publisher's gold mine in this way right and it was again about that timing when i came through i think if i had come through maybe in the mid 80s it wouldn't have happened um and then um maybe in the early 2000s when there were a lot of us but but now we're talking about we need diverse books and you know there are not a whole lot of um indigenous voices There uh, the, the latinx voice is there's still and such a need for um writers um and and the experiences of people of color are so varied that there isn't that single story and i think publishers are hungry for that good narrative. And I think the same was true of me in the 90s. It was like, okay, we're hungry for narratives that people will buy. right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's like, how many books are we going to sell? Um, but so it wasn't a challenge. The challenge for me was figuring out what stories I was going to tell. And I think when I talk to young writers and they're like, "Well, what's hot in the market?" It's like it doesn't matter. By the time you finish your book, that shit ain't gonna be hot no more. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> so you need to write what you love because that's what's gonna be timeless, right? The thing that matters the deepest to you. Um, and and for me, I wanted to put the stories of um, people from Bushwick, the neighborhood I grew up on the page. I wanted to put. Um, the stories of single parents, the stories of people who are incarcerated, the stories of familial foster care, um, all these stories that where I had known the people existing in those realities, but whose stories were not on the page. And, and so I wasn't even asking myself, if I write this as a publisher, going to publish it, I was saying, if I don't write this, I'm going to lose my mind. So, so that's, that, that's how I came into it. And, I was taking a writing class at the new school in the city and there was an editor in a class and the teacher read part of last summer with amazing, which was my first novel. And the editor was like, we want to buy this. <laughs> like, so, so it was really kind of almost fluky, easy to get into the world of publishing. Um, before that I had been publishing short stories and stuff, um, and poetry, but, but I really wanted to write novels. And I didn't even know I was writing most of my novels for young people um but i wrote a bunch and then i wrote an adult book called autobiography of a family photo back in the day and then i just liked the world of young people's literature so much that i kind of stayed there
0: Mm. i mean you and i again it's i actually got to la like kind of the moment that they were like we could put someone with a really weird haircut in this movie like (laughs) and i was like oh you want a weird haircut Look at this, you know, uh, but so I I know what you're talking about, that moment where um, like being a marginalized voice or whatever or marginalized face (laughs) or marginalized haircut (laughs) uh, is like suddenly in demand. And that also Mm -hmm. puts an interesting amount of pressure on, you know, being then somebody that is sort of chosen in this moment Mm -hmm. where you have this opportunity and then, you know, doing Mm -hmm. that justice. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is true. It's like, there is a responsibility that comes with, well, I think it comes with, as you know, telling any story, right? It's like, um, who was it? Audrey and Rich said, how can I tell my story when you're standing on my throat? And it's that sense of like, I don't want to tell a story that's not mine, right? That I don't own in some way. So what stories am I telling? and How true are they to me? But that said, you know, every book that I write is not going to be about, uh, a black girl growing up in Bushwick with her grandmother and her mother, but um, um, because that's not all that I am, and that's not all that I know. But I do have to ask myself every time I write a book, where is Jacqueline Woodson in this story? You know, is this my story to tell? And I think that's why I haven't um, written about um, trans experiences because I, it's not my story. You know, I, I know you know um, trans people, but but I don't. It's, it's not, and I, you know, I have a trans son, but, but it's it's not my story, it's their story. And, um, you know, my hope is to one day help someone tell their story, but I'm not going to take their story and try to make it mine.
0: I mean, that's, what a reasonable limitation you've set on yourself. <laughs> a limitation that I think uh, so many people can learn from. That's true in, yeah. in stand-up, too. It's really hard to... Um, like sell a joke and I mean like you know stand behind a joke that doesn't make any sense for you to be telling. It's mm-hmm. it's also you know looping back to what we were talking about earlier it's when a comic really gets in trouble for saying something that then is like a, a, t- a horrible thing to say. So often it's because that person is actually like stepping out um, yeah. And, and having commentary on something that they just like could shut their mouths on, you know, and like listen on. Um, and yeah. so you don't actually need to cover all things. And or if you are covering something that's outside of your experience, like um, being aware of the distance, because that, mm-hmm. you know, that's a true thing, too. I think it's a little yeah, different yeah. in like writing versus maybe like a performative art, like we're all experiencing stuff in our culture. And like the zeitgeist and the job of the stand up is to kind of speak to the zeitgeist. But you have to know your positioning, you know. Yeah, like uh-huh. it can't be, like I can't. I I should set. I should definitely talk about like racial justice on stage, and then I should mm-hmm. also just like definitely be like I also like I am firmly a white person. <laughs> you know, like I uh-huh. I think it's important yeah. to understand the distance that you have from the issues that you're taking on. You're mm-hmm. um, responsible. Well, listen, friend. This was a dream to talk to you. Uh-huh.
1: Oh, I know so how busy you are you.
0: <laughs> um, and I know you've had like a, a you know a full house today that you put on hold <laughs> to be like no no I gotta go sit in the corner oh, and a make nice a slug. phone call. Um, before I like send you back into your day I just wanted to ask if you wanted to shout out a queer out. that's like a person or place or thing that made you feel comfortable in the person that you are today.
1: Uh. It- should the person be living, dead, or?
0: Oh my gosh! Uh, guess what? Yeah. It is you get to choose, and and, I, uh, and there's no, there are no parameters.
1: Oh, I, I guess like I would go way back um, to the beginning and start with James Baldwin, who to this day, you know we were talking earlier about how some writing is timeless, whether we want it to be, or not. you know, the stuff he was talking about is still so relevant. And he was a black queer man, um, doing his thing and, and and getting crap for it and doing it anyway. And so
0: he's my guy. Yeah. Aren't we like, lucky that that we're not the, f- the, f- the first. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I get so grateful on that. Yeah. I think about my job. I think uh, about the, the people uh that i've gotten to follow
1: yeah yeah the shoulders we're standing on i'm Mm. grateful for all of them
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely and in your books um the day you begin and harbor me are out august 28th and i'll also say the day You begin is like an early reader book um i gave it to my mom who's a preschool teacher so she'll be reading it for her preschool (laughs) but um i like loved it i think that it's you know what it's like a great like it's good for reading to young kids. It's also great for like when you have that college graduation thing, <laughs> you should give it to all of your friends for college graduation. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, you always are like, you get like a picture book anyway. Uh, but um, I also, I've loved uh, all of your stuff that I've read and I, I can't wait to read the um, other like 87 books that you write <laughs> like at a speed that is just impossible yeah. to understand.
1: Oh Well, I'm excited to see you perform live one day I- yeah, doing your work and loving it so. Awesome, thank you for what you do,
0: Cameron. Rad, so I'll be out your way real soon. I'll invite you. You yeah. come out see the show. Yeah.
1: Definitely, right. you bet. Thank
0: uh, you. Thank you so much. Rock and roll. Go enjoy the rest of your day. Today's episode of Query is sponsored by True Body Bra. Over a million people swear by the original True Body Bra by TrueAndCo.com. The True Body Bra looks amazing when you put it on because it's got super soft fabric that smooths out in all the right places. It has no wires, so it's super comfy for all-day wear. You can try the original True Body Bra from TrueAndCo with free and easy returns. And save 15% off when you go to TrueAndCo.com query. T-R-U-A-N-D-C-O dot query and enter the code QUERY for 15% off. Wow, listen to those bras.